So the Lord brings us to the second chapter of the book of Ruth today. Before we read the word, though, let's go to the Father. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, your word written thousands of years ago is so applicable for us today. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts to hear from you. Lord, I pray for this man as I preach your word on this day. Lord, proclaim your word through me. Father, if I preach anything that is not of you, I pray that you would close the ears of the hearers so that they only hear what is from you, our Lord, our God, our Redeemer. So Father, open up your word, open up our hearts to be transformed by you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, last week, Nathan did a great job of introducing us and opening up the book of Ruth for us. Today, we're going to head into Ruth chapter 2, a famous chapter. If you've never read it in detail, I I encourage you to spend a lot of time there later on this afternoon. Uh, The book of Ruth is written during the time of the Judges. So if you're looking for it in your Bible, you're going to find it right after that book. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, which was the, the guy that led the people into the promised land. Then in the first chapter of the book of Judges, Joshua dies and is buried. And right after Judges is where we find Ruth. But Ruth lived during that period in the time of the Judges. Now, in the second chapter of Judges, right as Joshua dies, we read there that the, in the next generation, right after that, the next generation, the people neither knew nor cared about the Lord our God. They had forgotten everything in that short amount of time. So Ruth is set in a very difficult, uh, lawless time in the nation of Israel. With that in mind, let's pick it up and read beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, 
I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Lord, bless this reading, hearing, and teaching of your holy, inerrant, infallible word. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I don't know how many of you that are here that are listening, watching this morning, uh, have glasses. Uh, if you're like me, you, you, you can't do much without them. And, so, and, and that's who I am. Uh, I remember when I went to the eye doctor for the first time. I was 40. And I suppose I went when I started school back in the first grade. I don't remember that far back. But when I got to the point where my sermon notes went from uh, being printed in 10-point font to 11-point font to 12-point to 14-point, I thought, something's got to give here. And so I made an appointment, went to the eye doctor, and uh, he began to ask me questions, and then he began to chuckle. What do you do for a living? And I told him, and he said, do you read much? And I said, well, at that point, 50 to 100 books a year. Do you use a computer much? I said, more than I would like to. Uh, And and he said, so tell me about the church. I said, well, uh, I want to be able to see the sanctuary in the back of the sanctuary and the people that are way back there, as well as the people that are up front. And he chuckled some more. He went through the test, and, and when he came back out, he said, well, um, good news, bad news, good news, I can fix it, bad news, it's progressive bifocals. No reading glasses, progressive bifocals. Those lasted for a couple of years. Font on my, my printouts began to get larger and larger. I had to go back and get new glasses again. I was amazed each time by how much I was missing with my old glasses third set of glasses it was the same this is my fourth set of glasses since then and I was amazed again shouldn't have been but I was I was amazed again by how much I was missing by what I didn't even know that I couldn't see Boaz Ruth our Lord gives us through this passage a new set of glasses I invite you to open up your heart as we dive into what we're going to find here. Nathan helped us to uh, see a bit of Ruth last week. I want to introduce her in a little more detail this morning. Then I want to see how the passage helps us introduce, or introduces us to Boaz, a worthy man, or a kinsman redeemer. Then I want us to look at this extravagant grace that God just pours and pours and pours out on his people. So follow along with me uh, in your Bible or on your device, and let's, let's see what God would teach us through, through our new glasses, our new eyes, that we would see with new eyes. First thing we got to see is that Ruth was a, well, she was an alien in the land. The passage tells us many times that she was a Moabite woman. Now, we got it, okay? First time you mentioned it, we know that Ruth is from Moab. You see it in the first few verses. She's from Moab. You don't have to tell us again unless you're trying to make a point. And the writer of Ruth tells us that so many times that you almost get the picture that he is taking our, our face in his hands 
And he's holding us close and getting eye to eye, nose to nose, and saying, listen, this is a Moabite woman. She's from Moab. She doesn't belong in Israel. She's not one of your people. She's a Moabite. Why does he do that? We need to get our glasses and see Israel through the eyes of Ruth, the Moabite, and we need to see Ruth through the eyes of the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 23, we see something of the relationship between Israel and Moab. Uh, the Moabites did not care for Israel when they could have, when they should have. And so God tells the Israelites, and, and again, back in Deuteronomy 23, that um, basically, what he, I'm paraphrasing here, the Moabites shall never enter Israel. They are not allowed to be in your land. They are not allowed to sit at your table. They are not allowed to even drink from your fountains. You shall have nothing to do with the people of Moab. They are to be over there. You're to be over here. And never the two shall meet. Never. Don't do anything with the people of Moab. For the, the people of Moab to enter into Israel would have been, well, it, it, it would have been undone. You, you don't do that. It would have been scandalous. It would have been like a fox entering into a hen house. You don't do it, right? So the Israelites hated the Moabites. So when Ruth is entering into Israel, she knows that as she walks down the street, as she walks through the fields, that everybody's staring at her. They know who she is. They know she's that Moabite woman, and she doesn't belong in our neighborhood. She's not allowed to be here. She's an outsider. She can look in as long as she stays across the border. Ruth isn't allowed to be here because she's a Moabite. Ruth would have been looking at Israel and she would have known fear. She would have known anxiety because she knows, she knows what's going on in Israel at this time. Listen, it was the period of the judges. It was a very violent time in the history of Israel. A, a woman alone was in danger, grave danger of being assaulted. A woman that was a widower, a, a widow was in grave, grave, grave danger because who's going to watch out for her? You take a woman from another country, especially a hated woman from a hated country like Moab. Not only would she have been assaulted, she could have been thrown aside, thrown to the edge of the road, and no one would have lifted a finger to help her or even acknowledge that she was even there. She knows that that's the case as she enters back into the nation of Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and as she goes towards the field to glean, she's not supposed to be there. But she does. She comes, and she comes with Naomi because of her love for Naomi, and she comes to this place where it's time for her to go gleaning from the fields. Well, that's not a word we use anymore, is it? Uh, what does it mean to glean from, from the fields? Well, the law in Israel was that the, um, the owners of the field were to leave the corners of their fields. Now, how big was the corner? Maybe it was just, you know, a few inches of the corner. Maybe it was a little bit more. Uh, but how much of the field were they supposed to leave? Just the corners of the fields were to be left to glean. So they would, the harvesters would go through the field. They would harvest the grain. Uh, and then after they had harvested the grain, they would come back and they would pick up some of the gleanings from the middle of the field. But they couldn't pick up the stuff on the edges. The gleanings were the things they had dropped. They couldn't pick up the stuff on the corners, rather. 
They had to leave that aside. That was for the poor, the oppressed, the widowers, the hungry, the widows that could come to those corners of the field and, and get some of the leftover stuff. For a Moabite woman, think about what's going to happen. She's going to come to this field, and the Israelite women are going to see her, and they're going to circle up, so to speak, and they're going to turn their backs on her. They're not going to allow her to be anywhere close to the field. This is my corner of the field. You're not allowed. This is not your neighborhood, not your place, not your business. You're not good enough to be here with me in this field, Ruth. She would have gotten, she would have, she would have gotten not the leftovers, not even leftovers of the leftovers. She would have gotten the leftovers of the leftovers of the leftovers. When Sandy and I were, were young newlyweds, uh, there was a, a, uh, a day-old bread company around the corner from my office, and often on the way home, I would stop, and, and I would buy a loaf of bread there or a couple of loaves of bread for 10 cents, you know, the kind of thing you do when you're, you're newlyweds or maybe even later on. And so we would get the, the day-old bread, and sometimes it was pretty stale, and um, it was good for nothing except toast, or you can make croutons out of it or something. I don't know what we did with it. Uh, but it was, you know, it was what we could afford, and we're thankful for it. Uh, Ruth w- would not have even gotten that. She would have been dumpster diving out back to get the leftovers of the day-old bread, the stuff that the bread company threw away. That's all she would have been left with. She's a fox in the hen house. She's a thief, an interloper. She's dangerous. She's a foreigner in the nation of Israel. She She's a Moabite, and she shall starve. Unless somebody, unless somebody comes along and takes up her cause. Ruth needed someone from the outside. The parallels to our own spiritual condition are striking. We have to have somebody from the outside. Because like Ruth, we don't belong. We don't belong in heaven. We don't belong in a relationship with Jesus Christ because Scripture tells us what fellowship has righteousness with evil. It doesn't. Does sin and holiness have fellowship together? Well, no. We're separated from God because of our sin. Someone has to bring us back to a place where we can have fellowship with the Lord. Who's it going to be? It has to be someone from the outside because all of us are sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In John chapter 1 We read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was Jesus. And then later on down in the chapter, we beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Redeemer that came from the outside, that came from heaven to be our Redeemer. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, we read that God demonstrates His own love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners while we were on the outside looking in while we were the interloper the fox the thief while we were that individual God demonstrated his own love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us he came from the father full of grace and truth that you and I might have life God did that for us who is going to do that for Ruth in this condition God gives her Boaz Boaz is a, is a type of Jesus Christ. He points to Jesus in this picture, just as Ruth points to you and me. Listen, Boaz, by law, was required to do the minimum, to leave the gleanings in the corners of the field 
for Israelites. He goes so far above that for Ruth, the Moabite woman that should never have been in the neighborhood. The second thing I want us to see then is that that Boaz is a worthy redeemer. He's a kinsman redeemer. Uh, He's the one that was her kin because he was of the family, uh, the clan of Elimelech, of her husband's clan. So he had a, uh, a right to and responsibility to come alongside uh, Elimelech's spouse or, or uh, um, Elimelech's offspring's spouse on down the line, but still a part of the family line and, and redeem her and come alongside her. He does it, but he does it in an extravagant way. Let me tell you a little bit more about this guy. Um, Boaz was a wealthy landowner. How do we, how do we know that? Well, uh, if he had been a landowner harvesting his own grain, working in the field all by himself, um, then we wouldn't have seen that he was a wealthy landowner. But he had harvesters doing the work for him. Not only that, he had women coming along behind the harvesters. So the harvesters go forward, pick up the grain. The women come behind them, pick up you know, what's been dropped as they've gone across the field, and they, they tie up the, sheet, the, the stalks of grain in bundles and then lay those at the end for the threshing floor later on. So Boaz shows up. He's a wealthy landowner. He's not only wealthy, but he's worthy. Not worthy because he's a warrior, but he's worthy because he's a godly man. I mean, look at how he steps in, into the picture when he, he comes into the field, when he comes down uh, from, from Bethlehem. He comes in and he says, the Lord bless you. The Lord be, the Lord be with you. He's coming as a representative of the Lord, the Lord God, not him as the Lord, the landowner Lord, but the Lord God above. And the people who seem to have a relationship with this guy, they respond, and the Lord bless you. So he's, he's worthy not just because he's wealthy, certainly not. Uh, he's worthy not just because he comes from the Lord, although that's great. He's worthy also because he has a relational, uh, a, a relational ministry amongst his people. His people know who he is. He said, the Lord bless you. Boaz, bless you from his people. He shows up in the lives of his farmhands, and he has this relational aspect to who he is. He sees Ruth across the way, and he knows that's not one of my harvesters. That's not one of the women that glean in my fields. Who is this woman? And he goes to one of his guys, who is this woman? Well, she's Ruth. She's the Moabite woman. There you go, Moabite again, who came from Moab with Naomi. And she has to glean in the fields hard-working woman. She's been working here since early this morning. She took a little break, but otherwise, Boaz, she's been working hard all day long. Boaz comes to her, and um, we, if we pick it up in verse, um, verse, verse 14 and on, um, I'm sorry, verse, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is looking at Ruth, and he knows that she has come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. Boaz knows at this point that he is those wings of the Lord for Ruth. He has a responsibility before the Lord whom he follows because he understands that first and second greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Boaz is going to act like the wings of the Lord over Ruth. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you too, like Ruth, have come to take shelter under the wings of the Lord. But also like Boaz, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the wings of the Lord. 
Now, maybe you don't see yourself as having wings that spread out that can care for anything. And I would just ask you to see with new glasses, to see with new eyes who you are in Christ, who he's called you to be and how he's called you to love and to live your neighbor as yourself. He's called you to love in that way. Look how Boaz invited this Moabite woman, Ruth, into this place. And he spreads his wings over her. Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, well, that was good for Boaz. Maybe you're even thinking Boaz went too far. He shouldn't have done that. Well, I want to take us to a place in Scripture where we see that what Boaz did is the norm in the Word of God. Let's, let's look first at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper, living and active, not just for back then, not just for Ruth, not just for the time of the Hebrews, but for now, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God then becomes our glasses, okay? Listen, culture, um, our environment, the place we grow up, um, the family we grow up in, our family of origin, uh, the country we grow up, up in, the travels that we take, all those come together and, and determine somewhat of who we are. But, but our identity must be rooted in something deeper. Our identity must be not flavored with something deeper, but determined by something deeper. So it is the Lord God that gives us our identity. The Word of God is, sh- is, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is that thing that gives us then our identity. And it's the culture that flavors our identity. But the Word of God has to take the lead on that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're in Christ. Seven times in the first chapter of Ephesians, we see that we are in Christ, and the Christ is in us. He determines not only who we are, but whose we are. We belong to Him if, you, if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So He determines who you are, whose you are, how he's called you to live, how he's called you to love, who you are, who, who you're in, who is in you, Jesus Christ. If you're, listen, if, you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're in Christ. He's given you a new set of glasses. The old has passed away. All things have become new. So we go on in, in the Word of God, and we see that this is not some abstract uh, chance thing that's going on in, in Ruth chapter 2. We go back to Isaiah 1, 16, 17. The writer there says, Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It's connected with this in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's the salvation aspect of this. Listen, Sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And it is connected with that that he says we are to seek justice and correct oppression. You know, maybe you say, well, I don't want to oppress anybody. Okay, that's great. That's great. God goes beyond that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he calls you to follow him and go beyond saying, I don't oppress anybody. He calls us here to correct oppression, to seek justice to bring justice to the fatherless 
not just say, well, my kids aren't fatherless, but you bring justice to the fatherless. You plead the widow's cause. He takes us beyond just saying, I don't do those things, to a place where we correct what has happened. Amos in chapter 5, similar kind of thing. says, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. What's he saying? He's saying there, listen, you're singing these songs, great hymns, great melodies, awesome, beautiful, but your heart is far from me. You're not living and loving the way I've called you to live in love. Your words, your songs then are meaningless. Your heart melody, pointless. Because the very next verse there in Amos 5. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-blowing stream. He says, make justice roll down, my friends. Make righteousness flow like an ever-flowing stream. We get to make that happen through Jesus Christ if we're believers. That's your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, same kind of thing. He has called you, old man. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, he calls us to live differently. Now, we look at justice and we think, well, it's a courtroom thing. It's not. That's not the way the word is used in the Old Testament. When he speaks of justice there, he's saying make it right. That's what it means to do justice. He's saying to make something just, to make something right to correct oppression if there's injustice if there's oppression what god makes very 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 clear in his word is it is our responsibilities as christians to correct oppression to do justice to love mercy and to walk humbly with our god humbly with our god because we aren't all that we're not the one that gets to stand up and say, I'm all that. Maybe others can rise up to my level. That's not who we are in belie- as believers in Jesus Christ. We need new glasses. We have to have new glasses. We'll take it forward into the New Testament. We'll, how about that? We look at, at Luke chapter 10, for example. We've got a Jewish man that's walking along the road. He's beaten. He's robbed. He's left for dead. A rabbi comes by, passes by on the other side because he don't want to get his hands dirty. I didn't kill him. He's not my problem. Jewish lawyer comes by. Ah, that's a shame. Hope you feel better tomorrow. Maybe you won't die. Not my problem. I didn't kill him. Samaritan comes by. The Jews and Samaritans hated each other so deeply that a, a, a Jewish man would walk miles around Samaria to keep from just going through the town. Yet it's a Samaritan man that takes... The, the wounded, left-for-dead Jewish man binds up his wounds, gets his hands all in his blood and gore, gets his hands in his mess, binds up his wounds, takes from his own wealth and gives to that man's poverty. And God tells us, Jesus tells us, that's your neighbor. How do you want to be, who's your neighbor? You live like the good Samaritan. He knows who his neighbor is is we need new glasses romans chapter 2 says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing the renewing of our minds the renewing of our glasses we need new glasses to see what's really going on around us boaz takes us to the place of seeing ruth with new glasses with new eyes 
Let me tell you some of how, how Boaz works out this theology in the life of the Moabite woman, Ruth. One of the first things we see is that he protects her. He says, my daughter, calms her down. My daughter, don't fear. My daughter, my men will protect you. Have I not given them charge to watch over you? In other words, don't, f- don't fear the bandits. Don't fear those that would assault you, that would leave you for dead. Don't fear them. I will care for you. Kind of what God says to us in John chapter 6 when Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hands. You are mine forever. So he goes from protecting her to saying, stay. Stay. Stay in my fields. Stay right here, right where you are. In other words, don't fear or worry about tomorrow. For this field, my field, my field will be your provision. In John chapter 15, remember Jesus said, abide, abide, abide with me. It means to dwell. It means to, it means to live in, to dwell in, to live in. He's saying, Ruth, you don't have to worry about tomorrow. I'm going to take care of you. Relax, stay. He says, glean here. Not just glean at the corners of the field, but glean here. Right, right where you are, Ruth. An invitation would have been common um, you know, for someone that was was an Israelite woman, but that's not what he does. He doesn't just give her an invitation. He gives her a command. Boaz invites her even as the harvesting is taking place. He's not saying, hey, come later when we're done harvesting. He's saying, right now today, as my men are in the field, harvest with us, glean with us. And he pours it on even more. He says, keep gleaning here. Don't stop to pick up just the extra. You don't need, you don't need any more. We'll pick up some more anyway. And then he says to her, he says to her, my men are going to not only give you the gleanings of the field, not only going to leave some behind as you harvest, but they're going to put out whole sheaves of of stalks of grain for you, and they're going to lay it at your feet, Ruth. You know, as he's telling his men to leave these sheaves of grain for her, others would have been listening, and they would have said, that is scandalous. How dare he treat this Moabite woman with such graciousness and such provision. But what he's doing is is he's he's lavishing it on her, okay? You you know what the word lavish means? We'll get it from Ephesians in chapter 1. We see it there as well. I think it's in... um, Here it is in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So grace is rich all by itself, right? But then he says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Boaz is lavishing it on Ruth. Not because she's beautiful, not because he has romantic interest in her, but because he loves like Jesus loves. He goes far beyond the minimum. David Strain says that uh, there is more grace in Jesus than there is need in you. And you will never exhaust the provision of God. That's the way he's loved you. My friends, that's the way he calls us to love others. Boaz goes on. He's still lavishing an honor. He says, if you're thirsty, drink from the fountain. Excuse me? She's a Moabite woman. She can't drink from an Israelite fountain. She can't do that. Even then, 
women would have drawn the water. And he's saying, you drink from the fountain. You drink from the water that my men have drawn for you. What a place of honor she has been given. He's going to care for her thirst. The same way Jesus cared for the thirst of the woman in John chapter 4. The woman that had had five husbands and the one she has now is not her husband. He says, you want living water? Ask me and I will give it to you. That's what Jesus Christ gives to you and to me. And that's what Boaz, representing Jesus, is giving to Ruth. Ruth didn't till the ground. She didn't plant. She didn't water it. She didn't tend it. She didn't weed it. She didn't harvest it. It's just poured out on her. She's blessed with it. Without money, without working for it, God gives it to her. And in verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. I want you to get a picture of that. We haven't had the privilege, the pleasure of having communion together uh, in a few months now, three months. But the, the time's coming. We didn't get to do it in April. We didn't get to do it in May. Didn't get to do it in June. But the time's coming when we will get to have communion together again. I long for that day. This waiting is, is hard, but it's good. It makes us long for Jesus even more. This picture that we have here is a picture of the Lord's Supper. As Boaz says to Ruth, come to my table. And she sits with all the others. And he gives her bread. And he says to her, dip it in my wine. Dip it here in my wine. And the passage tells us that she was satisfied and had some left over. That's what grace does for you and for me. Yet grace, listen, such grace is dangerous. See, how can it be dangerous? Listen, if we see grace through the eyes of Jesus Christ, if we see ourselves and our need of grace through the eyes of of Jesus Christ and it becomes a dangerous thing an extravagant thing but a dangerous thing it's dangerous because through it Jesus calls us to follow where he leads we don't always want to follow where Jesus leads that means that we'll have to let go of other things other places other beliefs other plans other ways of living that we hold dear and that we might have inadvertently allowed to define who we are. Yet the gospel of Jesus Christ is also extravagant. The extravagance of God's grace is seen in the way Jesus takes our stubble and he gives us gold. How he takes our foolishness and he gives us wisdom. How he takes our words and he gives us new songs. How he takes our hate and he gives us his love. That's the extravagant grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for me. So what do we do with that? Well, I think some of the implications are pretty clear. For the Israelite Boaz's grace towards a Moabite widow, Ruth, who did not belong in that neighborhood, was scandalous. It was an affront. How dare you marry that woman? How dare you love her, protect her, go to bat for her? And yet that's also what he's done for us. But my friends, just as God has done that for us so he calls us to follow him. If we're Christians, that means we're Christ followers. We go where he goes. We love how he loves. We live how he lives. We, we give how he gives. We think and we thrive as Jesus has called us to think and to thrive. Our, our life is set not by our culture. Our life is set not by our education. 
Our life is set not by what is comfortable. Our life is set by Jesus Christ. He's the one that determines who we are. And so we live according to that. Like Boaz reached and cared for Ruth and came alongside her and gave her the seat that was closer to him than any other seat in the house. So we go and do life with people that might not be like us. Maybe it's a different race. Maybe it's a different religion. Maybe it's someone from another part of the world in a different language that you're just not comfortable with. Maybe you've never hung out in that way. But God calls you to do something different. And listen, don't think for a second that I'm only speaking for those that are white or their skin is mostly white uh, in relation to those whose skin is mostly black. The, what we have from, from God is that all of us have that same issue the world over. Racism exists in one way here in the United States, and it exists somewhat differently in other parts of the world. But it's still the same sin where we see some that are created in the image of God as somehow beneath us or some that would make us uncomfortable and we don't want to go there. My friend, Jesus Christ goes there. When he came from the Father full of grace and truth, he came from the Father full of grace and truth for every single one of us. So just as Boaz goes to the one that doesn't belong in his neighborhood, God calls us to go to the ones that we might think don't belong in our neighborhood, that we are different from. We need to see through different eyes just as Boaz did. Jesus calls us in that same way. We go beyond allowing someone to just glean in our fields and to just get the cast off, the leftovers, our leftovers, our leftovers. We go from that to the place where we're, we're harvesting alongside other people. We're correcting oppression and helping people up and working and loving alongside them until we're drinking from the same cup, until we're all satisfied and there's some left over. The hero in this story isn't Ruth. Listen, Ruth would, as we'll see next week, became um, the great-great-grandmother or great-grandmother of David, um, of whom we have Jesus Christ from that line. So Jesus comes through this Moabite woman, but she's not the hero. Boaz is the hero in so much as he points towards Jesus Christ. But the real hero here is Jesus Christ. He's the one that has poured out his extravagant grace on you and on me that we might have new life in Christ. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, he calls you to see with new glasses. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things all things have become new in Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Father. Lord, thank you for coming to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us new life in Christ. Lord, I pray that you will continue to transform us as people, uh, as, as a church, as a city, as a nation. Father, I look forward to heaven because I know when we stand before you in heaven, we're going to be singing the same song. Heal us, Emmanuel. We're going to be singing it together. And we will be totally, completely, 100% healed. We will be singing it as a celebration, as a work that's already done. And we'll be singing alongside people of different languages, different nationalities, different time periods. Father, we'll be, we'll be singing alongside people whose skin is all different hues. How beautiful that's going to be. Lord, I so long for that aroma. Lord, until that happens, until that happens, my Father, would you make yourself known here on this earth? Would you transform me? Would you transform us? 
for your glory and for our good that we too might swim and dwell and live in the extravagant grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.